and it is a great day today. Go ahead and uh, turn to John chapter 7. I'll be reading, <clears throat> I'll be reading uh, verses 37 to 39 this morning. And while you're doing that, I do want to mention a couple of things. First of all, I want to say on behalf of the staff of Fellowship Bible Church, thank you a thousand times over for your giving to the church uh, this last month or so. You also had the opportunity to give toward uh, a fund that was used for Christmas bonuses for the staff, so thank you so much for that. Uh, it's just a, just a tremendous blessing. And <clears throat> overall, of course, the church operates because... You guys are faithful in your giving out of your, your uh, generous love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You give to the church, and we thank you for that. We appreciate it every single dollar, whether your gift is a small one or a large one. We thank you. And uh, I do want to remind you, since Saturday is going to be 2022, that if you are planning any year-end giving, you just have a few days uh, before you need to get that in. But thank you again for your faithful giving. It is a blessing to all of us. All right. Well, it is the it's the day after Christmas, so a lot of us probably are still thinking about gifts. What gifts you received? What gifts you gave? Maybe you're thinking about a gift that you gave that you wish you hadn't because it didn't turn out to give the joy that you thought it would. Uh, maybe you're thinking about a gift that you got that you wish you hadn't. You know, if you uh, if you are below the age of 20, maybe 18, maybe go a little bit small, below the age of 18, and you get socks, underwear, pajamas, or shirts, it just, it just doesn't spark the joy that it does uh, for us older people <laughs> when, we get, when we get a gift like that. But all this season, all this Christmas season, we're just bombarded with, with thoughts and words about gifts. You know, all the advertisements that you see, it's constantly talking about buying gifts, giving gifts, that kind of thing. So they got me thinking about gifts, and, and specifically about gifts that we receive from our God. Now, of course, everything in, that we have is a gift from God, beginning with our life itself that, is, that was given to us. None of us earned that or created it of our own accord. But this morning, I want you to think about, <clears throat> I want you to think about an infinite gift from God the Father and God the Son, the gift of the Holy Spirit. As I was preparing this message, uh, there were parts of it, the scriptures that I had looked up that started feeling a little familiar, so I did some research and uh, discovered that February 10th, 2019, I did a message called the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm going to be in a different passage than that, but if any of this feels a little bit familiar to you, that may be why. <laughs> I'm probably repeating some of the same thoughts. All right, before I read from today's text, uh, John 7, 37 to 39, I want to give you a little bit of context. So uh, in John chapter 7, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. It was one of three feasts that the law required adult Jewish males to attend in person. And the Feast of Booths was called that because during that feast, uh, the people were to live in booths or, or temporary shelters. And the purpose of this feast was to commemorate and remind Israel of their wilderness wanderings when God had delivered them from the land of Egypt. And they spent 40 years 
moving about in the wilderness before God brought them to the promised land. Now, one of the purposes of that feast was for Israel to remember that they were completely dependent on God's grace during that time. For those 40 years, they were completely dependent on God to miraculously provide what they needed in order to survive. And it was a reminder that the only reason that they were now living in permanent homes was because God himself had given them a homeland. Now, over time, uh, at some point, the Jewish people added another ceremony to this feast. It was a water-pouring ceremony. And I got conflicting uh, reports on the research I did, uh, so I'll just pick one and, and stick with it if it's a little bit off. Uh, <laughs> forgive me. But uh, according to one of the accounts I read during this feast, which lasted eight days, uh, for the first seven days, a priest from the temple would take a golden pitcher and he would walk to a nearby spring and fill it with water and then walk back to the temple accompanied by musicians and worshipers celebrating joyfully what God had done for them. And then he would go to the temple and he would pour that water over the altar. And that was to commemorate God's provision of water from a rock for Israel when they were in the wilderness. You'll recall two separate times when Israel needed water desperately. There's no water around and God miraculously brought water out of a rock. Now in addition to remembering what God had done in those particular instances, it also again highlighted the fact that they are dependent on God for everything, even the very water that they need for life. And this water-pouring ceremony was a picture, a prophetic picture of the age of Messiah, because during the age of Messiah, the prophet Zechariah said that water would flow abundantly from Jerusalem. So that's the setting in which we're going to find this passage, and I'll read it now. It'll be on the screens and uh, hopefully on your Bibles in front of you. Verses 37 to 39 of John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus stands up. Remember, he's got the setting of this Feast of Booths where they're remembering their wilderness wanderings, their dependence on God. They have this water-pouring ceremony, which is reminding them that God quenches their thirst, that God provides what they need, and that one day Messiah will bring this abundant prosperity to their land. Jesus stands up and cries out to the crowd, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, I'm not actually going to dig into that verse. I'm going to concentrate on the next two verses, but let me commend it to you for a meditation and further study on your own. It's just a, a glorious offer from Christ saying, whatever you need, I can provide. I can quench your thirst. It reminds me of uh, Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus said, uh, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden or heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. He offers rest to the weary, he offers water to the thirsty. And of course, it is yet another obvious statement of his divinity, because who would be so bold and arrogant to say, come to me and your needs will be satisfied? Only Jesus could, because of course he was God in the flesh. Okay, so I said I wasn't going to delve into that, so I'll keep moving. Uh, Jesus follows this statement, this glorious invitation with a promise. Whoever believes in me out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And what he's talking about there is the infinite gift of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, even though the Spirit is referred to as a gift, and you will sometimes see the Spirit spoken of in ways that seem uh, impersonal, I do want to just make it clear that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Father is a person, the Son is a person, the Spirit is a person. Each of those three persons is equally and fully God. The ancient Athanasian Creed says, The divinity of the Father, the divinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. So even though I am going to refer to the Spirit as a gift, because of course the Bible does that as well, please keep in mind that the Spirit is not some impersonal force. He is not an it. He is a person, a divine person. So what was I going to say after that? I said that part, moving ahead. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. That's what I was going to do. I was going to tell you what I was going to do. Uh, I remember years ago, I worked as an electrical engineer at Laterno Incorporated, which is now Komatsu. And uh, for a time, Peter Bradley was my boss's boss. And uh, I'm not saying this for his benefit, but he was just a phenomenal boss's boss. Let me say that. Uh, because I didn't have to work on him directly. See, no, I'm kidding. That was. I'm just. Where is Peter? See here today. Over there. Okay, there. You go. Well, anyway, I remember Peter telling me one time that uh, whenever you're speaking, you're supposed to tell people what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them, and that helps to cement it in your mind. So, all that to say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you first. So, I'm going to explain a little bit about what this gift is. And then I want to talk about a couple of the glorious benefits and blessings that this gift brings. So, let's look at the gift, first of all, the gift of the indwelling spirit. The gift of the indwelling spirit. Now, before I talk about the meaning of that gift, I want you to think about this question. Who is this promise to? Who is this gift for? Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The promise, the, the offer, the gift is not to the spiritually mature. It is not to the person who prays the most. It's not to the person who most fervently and enthusiastically and consistently serves the Lord. All of those things, of course, are wonderful, glorious things that we should aspire to and aim to. But Jesus offers this to whoever believes in him. If you have believed in Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then you can claim this promise and say with full confidence, this gift is yours. You might be wondering this morning what it means to believe in Jesus. Simply that means to believe that he is the son of God who died on the cross for, for your sins and rose from the dead and to trust in him for your salvation. Romans 10, uh, 9 and 10, of course, puts it very simply. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if that's you, if you have believed in Jesus, no matter how screwed up your life appears, no matter how weak and immature and inconsistent you are, if you have believed in Jesus, then you have this gift. You can stand on this promise 
that Jesus is giving. And praise God that the gift of the indwelling spirit does not depend upon our consistency, our faithfulness, our holiness, or our dedication. Praise God that it depends upon the worth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we just sang the words that came from Revelation chapter 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain because of what Jesus has done in fulfilling the work of redemption and bringing all of God's plan to fruition and perfection. Because of who he is, we can receive this gift because it's based on his worth. So let's look for just a minute about what this gift is. What is it that Jesus is promising to us? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The word translated heart actually is literally stomach or belly. And that's why the old uh, King James Version says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Since your stomach is on the inside of you, no matter how big it gets, it's still inside you, right? Since your stomach is on the inside of you, and since it's the center of your physical body, stomach was used as a metaphor for the core of your being, your innermost being, who you are at your heart or your soul. So Jesus here is promising that rivers of living water will come from within our innermost being. In fact, that's the way some versions put it. Out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But what are these rivers of living water? In biblical thought, living water is water that is fresh and clean, as opposed to, say, salt water or water that is uh, sitting for a long time and is, is stale and stagnant. Living water is water typically that's in motion. For instance, a river is a source of living water, of course, as long as it is clean. So living water is water that is life-giving, that is fresh, that brings blessings to man, animals, and plants. In verse 39... John provides some spirit-guided commentary on this promise. So Jesus said, rivers of living water, rivers of fresh, life-giving water are going to flow out of your innermost being. And then John adds this, led by the Holy Spirit. Now this he said about the Spirit. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The rivers of living water that will be flowing from your innermost being refer to the indwelling Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to everyone who believes in him. The Holy Spirit is the living water that flows from within believers. Just as water brings life and blessings in the physical world, the Spirit of God within you brings spiritual life and spiritual blessings. And it isn't just a little bit here or there. He says rivers of living water, not droplets of living water, not a mist, rivers of living water, an abundance, a superabundance of spiritual life and blessings is given to each and every believer by the indwelling Holy Spirit who brings us the presence and fellowship of the triune God. This promise that Jesus made in John chapter 7 38 is that the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, as I mentioned earlier, would be given to live inside believers and that he would be an unending source of life and blessing. Later in the same book in John chapter 14, Jesus said this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit of God is given to dwell with us forever. He will eternally be a source of life and blessing welling up within us. And that's not just in this life. He's going to be with us 
forever, throughout all eternity, the Spirit of God welling up spiritual life within us. Now, one more thing I do want to say just to clear up any confusion, especially since I know there are some uh, younger people in here than maybe are usually. The Spirit of God is a spirit. He is not a physical being. God is spirit. That is his natural state of being. Jesus is the only person of the Trinity that took on human flesh and now has a physical body. So when I say that the Spirit dwells in you, I'm not saying you can physically locate him within your body. I'm saying that there is a spiritual, personal, intimate connection between the Spirit of God and your spirit. And the only way we can put that in human words is to say that he is living within us. I was reminded as I was reading this of of, uh, the little girl who had uh, prayed to receive Christ And uh, her parents found her in the bathroom looking in the mirror with her mouth open. And she said she was looking to see if Jesus was down there in her heart. So I just want to clear that up. The spirit is not physically within your body. He is spiritually within your soul. (laughs) That may not even clear it up. You may go, I still don't know what you're talking about. So let's just leave it at this. The Bible says he will dwell within us, okay? So let's leave it right there. So when we're talking about indwelling, we're talking about an intimate spiritual union that is eternal and produces spiritual life and blessings. And that's what I want to talk about now, just two blessings I want to focus on today. However, before I do that, this is the third time I've done that, haven't I? I'll be like, okay, this is where I'm going to go. Wait, before I do that, I apologize about that. My my thoughts are a little bit scattered. I didn't get the gift I wanted. (laughs) I'm kidding. For Christmas. I'm just kidding. My wife did a a great job. Before I get into the blessings of the Holy Spirit, I do want to talk for just a minute uh, about what it says in verse 39, which raises the question, what is different from the Old Testament experience of the Holy Spirit? Do you and I experience or enjoy something that the people of God who lived before Christ didn't enjoy or didn't experience? Or to put it maybe more starkly, are we getting something that Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Samuel and Isaiah didn't get. Well, look with me at verse 39 again. So John says, This he said about the Spirit, rivers of living water, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And then he adds this interesting commentary. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus made this promise as a, as a future thing. And John explains, here's why that's future. Jesus was not yet glorified, so the Spirit had not yet been given. Now, interestingly, this phrase, the Spirit had not yet been given, is literally this, for the Spirit was not yet, or it was not yet Spirit. Now, almost every English translation adds the word given, even our good, trusty King James that the Apostle Paul read. <laughs> Even the good, trusty King James uh, says, adds the word given. That puts it in italics because it's not there in the original Greek. So here's what I'm getting at. Why would John say the Spirit was not yet? Did the Spirit exist before this time? Yes, amen. We're an Orthodox congregation. Exactly right. <laughs> the Spirit is God. He has always Existed And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit filled, guided, and empowered God's servants. For instance, in Numbers 27, the Lord called Joshua a man in whom 
is the Spirit. In Judges 6, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And 2 Peter 1 says that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that means every prophecy of Scripture in the Old Testament, in fact, the entire Old Testament, was written under the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So yes, the Spirit always was, and He was completely and fully active and engaged with the world, even in the Old Testament. So why would John say, the Spirit is not yet? Well, John must be talking about the Spirit doing something new or coming in a way that he has not before. And the timing of that new work would be after Jesus was glorified, which refers to that sequence of events where Jesus suffered, was crucified on the cross, suffered the wrath of God on our behalf, was buried in a tomb, rose from the dead, then spent 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God and showing them that he was truly and fully alive, and then ascended into the heavens. So all that complex of events, that is the glorification of Jesus when he fulfilled prophecy, when he completed the work of redemption and bought our salvation for now and forever. After Christ finished that work, he was glorified in a new way as our Lord and our Savior. And after he ascended, excuse me, right before he ascended in the book of Acts chapter 1, he told the followers to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after Christ had ascended, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit appeared <clears throat> with these amazing accompanying signs. <clears throat> As you will recall, there was a sound of rushing wind. There were visible tongues of fire above all of the followers of Christ. And then those followers of Christ were empowered supernaturally to praise God in languages they didn't know. So with all of that commotion, all of that visible sign, the Spirit was showing that he had indeed come on the scene in a new and different way. And as you know, a group of people gathered because of all this commotion from the Spirit's coming. And then Peter preached a sermon to them in which he said at one point, talking about Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the day of Pentecost is when the promise of John chapter 7, verse 38 was fulfilled. This is when the Spirit was given. It wasn't the first time he was active on earth. As you know, Genesis chapter 1, at the beginning of creation, it says the Spirit of God was hovering or brooding over the face of the waters. He was active, <clears throat> he was active always. <clears throat> Excuse me, he was active always. But, let me take a drink. The day of Pentecost ushered in a new age of the Spirit's work. The great Welsh preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones explains it this way. In the Old Testament, we are told that the Holy Spirit was with the men, or that he came upon the men, as I read earlier. He worked upon them from without, as it were. And uh, when... I lost my place. He worked upon them from without, as it were. And even David said in Psalm 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, as if the Holy Spirit was with him, but could be withdrawn. This is, as David Martin Lloyd-Jones says, this is the Old Testament terminology. The New Testament terminology is in, within. He works from within, and he abides. Remember what Jesus said, he will be with you forever. In the Old Testament, he came upon men, and he left them. In the New Testament, he comes, and he abides. 
Because the Spirit was on Christ in his fullness, and he comes from Christ to the body. The Spirit abides in us perfectly. And that, Lloyd-Jones says, it seems to me is the essence of the teaching with regard to this matter. So the Spirit was at work in the lives of Old Testament believers. The only reason anyone can believe in God and put their faith in him is through the activity of the Holy Spirit. But in this new covenant era, in this age of the Spirit that we have entered since the day of Pentecost, he is with us in a more intensive, permanent, and deeper way than he was with Old Testament saints. So based on what Jesus said, I have to conclude this. By virtue of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, you and I do have a privileged relationship to the Holy Spirit that Abraham, Moses, and David didn't have. Now, I will say I cannot wrap my mind around that because you think about Abraham speaking directly with God. You think about Moses, it said at one point he was talking to God face to face like you would with a friend. Moses and David each wrote parts of the Bible. They accomplished great and mighty things for God. God worked through them to do incredible miracles. How can it possibly be that I'm given a deeper or stronger or greater connection with the Spirit of God than these men? How can that possibly be? Well, it can only be because of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. And so when he came in his fullness, he was able then to send the Spirit in his fullness to us. I can't comprehend that, but I have to believe it based upon God's word and thank the Lord for it. So now I'm going to talk about a couple of blessings that this gift of the indwelling spirit gives us. First of all, the indwelling spirit pours God's love into our hearts. If the spirit only gave us spiritual life, that would be a blessing beyond description. But the spirit gives over and above that blessing upon blessing. The last part of Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Through the Spirit, God's love is poured into our hearts. Our inner man is flooded with the love of God. I believe this verse is talking about God's love for us, His faithful covenant love for His children. The Spirit ministers that love to our hearts. One way he does that is by reminding us that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. By reminding us that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. By reminding us that the Father is giving us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. The Spirit pours God's love into our hearts by giving us the faith and strength to believe and cling to these truths that demonstrate God's love. Maybe a simpler way to put it is this. One way that the Spirit pours out God's love in our hearts is by making us aware of God's love again and again. Because all of us who have been believers for a while, those truths that I just mentioned, we know every one of them. None of them are new to us. But the Spirit has to bring them to the forefront of our hearts again and again as we are facing the difficulties and trials of this life and always, of course, fighting against the deceitfulness of sin. In addition to that, the Spirit gives us the awareness or the sense of God's love. It's a knowing that God loves you deeply and perfectly and eternally, a knowing that fills you with gladness and peace. And I realize that that awareness is not present all the time, but when it is there, it is a blessing from the Spirit of God. 
And maybe it's the same thing as a sense of God's love, but another thing I wanted to mention is that the Spirit brings us an emotional response to the love of God. And I know this will sound a little bit hazy and mushy, but uh, I guess the easiest way to think about it is this. Whenever you are loved by someone, your mother, your father, a brother, a sister, a husband, wife, or a friend, whenever you are loved by someone and you know that you are loved by them, that evokes a response of emotion in your heart, a gladness, a sweetness, and a joy. And the Spirit of God does that in our hearts. I know, again, that it isn't constant. I know it is not perfect. But I am certain, as certain as I can be of anything, that the Spirit of God gives us the feeling, the sense, the awareness, the knowing that God loves us and allows us to taste the sweetness of that love. And if you haven't tasted that in a while, if you haven't felt loved by God for a long time, let me encourage you this morning to pray for the Spirit to do that work in your heart again, to pour God's love into your heart anew. The other blessing that I want to focus on today is this. The indwelling Spirit leads us to holiness. Holy, the word holy means uh, separate, set apart. So holiness refers to being set apart from sin and being set apart to God. Uh, For instance, in the Old Testament uh, temple system, there were certain uh, utensils and vessels that were set apart for use only in the temple. So you couldn't use them for your uh, Fruit Loops in the morning. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't use them for ordinary things because they were, they were set apart from ordinary use and they were dedicated or separated to use by God. And that is the, that is the holiness that I'm talking about. We are to be set apart from sin and set apart for our Lord God. Now, there are two aspects to holiness in the life of a believer. There's positional holiness and there is practical holiness. So positional holiness relates to our position or our status. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven of your sins, you're given the indwelling Holy Spirit, you're adopted into the family of God, and the Father gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He credits the righteousness of Christ to your account. And that is why the Father can treat you as if you are perfectly holy because he treats you on the basis of what Christ has done who, of course, lived in perfect obedience and holiness. And that holiness cannot change. It is the, it is the possession of every believer in Christ just as much as the indwelling spirit is. It is based on your position as a child of God, accepted and beloved. However, we don't live perfectly, consistently with that position or with that status. We don't always live as if we are beloved children of God. We sometimes act like we're enemies of God. We we yield to sin. We do things that we shouldn't do and so on and so forth. (laughs) That's a speaker's way of saying, I don't know how to end this sentence, so on and so forth. Just put a period there. So practical holiness refers to our practice of the faith, our practice of of, uh, obedience to God, our practice of the pursuit of God and our uh, separation from sin. And that is imperfect. Positional holiness, absolutely perfect because it's based on the perfect holiness of Christ. But our practical holiness, that is how we are actually living this life. It's horribly imperfect. And... It is progressive because the Spirit of God, one of the things that He's doing in your life, He is leading you to grow 
in your practical holiness. He is leading you to practice more and more consistently that which is true of you in Jesus Christ. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 13 to 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Spirit of God leads believers to put to death the deeds of the body. He's talking about, of course, sinful sinful deeds. This is one of the ways that the triune God works to free us from the power of sin by helping us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that it says if we put to death the deeds of the body, we're therefore led by the Spirit of God. Uh, But I do want to emphasize that the the Bible is not teaching that this is a one-time thing, okay? It's not like, oh man, I was tempted to that sin, I put it to death, I can close that book and move on with my life. These are not one-time battles. You have to kill sin, and sometimes the same sin, over and over again, for the rest of your life. There are some sins that God in his wisdom allows us, they're different ones of course for each of us, allows us to struggle with for our entire lives, probably to keep us humble, uh, humbled and dependent upon his grace. Now when you put to death a sin, you aren't killing that sin for the rest of your life. As I said, you're not killing the temptation for the rest of your life. So let me give you an example. Let's suppose your, one of your sinful tendencies is to really be verbally cruel Whenever somebody annoys you, annoys you, verbally cruel whenever someone annoys you. So put yourself in this situation. You just get off work. You've got to run by Albertsons to pick up some food for supper. So you get to, to the uh, checker, and it's a new checker who s- appears to have never been familiar with the uh, cash register before. And so they're scanning things incorrectly. They keep messing up and having to pull them off. They have to call their manager over. Now, your sinful tendency would be what? To give that checker a piece of your mind, to let her know that she is inconveniencing you, that she is bothering you, that she's making you angry, that she should probably pick another line of work. You want to belittle her and embarrass her. That is your sinful tendency, okay? That is a tendency of sinful humanity to want to just process our emotion by pouring it out on someone else. What the Spirit would be leading you to do would be to hold your tongue, first of all, to be patient with that person, and even to speak words of kindness and understanding to this new person who's going through such a struggle. Now, suppose in that moment you yield to the leading of the Spirit, and so you, as the lady's apologizing, you say, oh, that, that's no problem, I understand, you know, everybody has a rough day, I hope yours gets better and you, you go on about your day. If you do that, in that moment, you have killed that sin that you were tempted to commit. Now, it doesn't mean that next week when you encounter a similar situation, you won't be tempted to do it again, but it does mean in that instance, you follow the leading of the Spirit to kill that sin. There will be times when you will give in, and you will need to repent and ask the Lord's forgiveness, but the leading of the Spirit will always be to kill each instance of sin that crops up in your life. And I suppose the reason I'm giving that example is I don't want you to think there's like this category of sin that you can stand before and say, I smite you in the name of Christ and it'll just be gone from your life. That is not how God works within us. But if you are following the leading of the Spirit, you will be fighting against and killing sin in your life. 
The Spirit also leads us to holiness by producing in us the godly fruit. Excuse me, yeah, the fruit of the Spirit. Godly fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I always get them mixed up. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I memorized it in the King James years ago, and then I memorized it in the New King James, and then the NAS, and now the ESV, so I, I get all these nouns uh, scattered. The Spirit uses Scripture and prayer and the gathering of the body of Christ and the circumstances of life to build Christ-like character in us, to make us more loving, more joyful, more patient, more good, more self-controlled. He leads us to holiness by moving us to fight our sin nature and to cultivate the nature of Christ. Now, it may be that you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking that you're doing such a terrible job of fighting sin and pursuing Christ and growing in holiness that you can't possibly be a child of God. Now, I do not want to give anyone false assurance, so I will not by any means stand up here and say each and every one of you is a child of God because you're gathered in this room. Only those who have trusted in Christ are children of God. But I do want to make it as clear as possible that your standing before God as a beloved child is based solely on the merits of Jesus Christ. So if you are putting your trust in Him, please know this morning, no matter how poorly you did this last week, if you screamed at your relatives on Christmas Day and threw your Christmas gifts in the trash, you are still a beloved child of God because of the constant, pure work of the Holy Spirit in your life and because of the absolute purity and gracious work of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Him, you are a child of God. And if you do believe in Him, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and He is working to lead you toward holiness. So what I want to leave you this morning is this, leave you with this morning. I'm not leaving you just yet. Jesus gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to his people. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for this incredible gift, the indwelling, eternal, and infinite Spirit living in us, bringing life, bringing blessings. And with this truth in mind, I want you to think about this question. Is there a fellow believer in your life that you could take some of these truths and, and encourage or strengthen in their faith? Maybe it's someone who's hit and miss on Sunday mornings. Maybe they choose to just sleep in or enjoy a lazy day at home instead of gathering with the body of Christ. Maybe it's something much more subtle. Maybe there's just a simmering coldness toward God, even though they're still, still faithful on Sunday mornings. Maybe they are angry at God for some tragedy or pain that they've experienced. I just want you to think about something maybe you could draw from this message, from this passage in John chapter 7 that would, that would strengthen their faith, that would encourage them to draw closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then on a more personal note, a question I think all of us should ask. Are you cooperating with the work of the Spirit in your life, or are you hindering the work of the Spirit in your life? I'm talking now specifically to believers because they are the only ones who have the Spirit of God living within them. And I don't want you to question your salvation. Once again, that's not my purpose. But I do want you to seriously consider the posture of your heart toward what God is doing in your life. Are you following the leading of the Spirit to fight sin? Or are you simply yielding to it? Are you following the leading of the Spirit to become more like Jesus Christ? Or are you simply going with the flow of what your friends, neighbors, or culture are doing? 
Jesus gave us the astonishing gift of the Holy Spirit. And out of gratitude and love, I encourage each one of you to pursue him more fully, to allow the Spirit of God to work in you, to love him more deeply, and to become more like his son. Excuse me, to become more like Jesus. Let's stand, and uh, I will close this in prayer in just a moment. And when I start praying, I'll just ask uh, any prayer team members that are here this morning if you would come forward. As always, at the end of each service, we have people up here that would be delighted to pray with you about anything that you're facing, anything you want to know more about related to the life of the believer, or if you're going through a difficult time. Please don't walk out of here carrying that burden alone. We want that to be shared And we want, of course, the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ to be ministered to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, through whom we have received adoption as sons, in his name I give you praise this morning for this scripture that tells us of the promise and the gift of the indwelling Spirit of God. Oh, Lord, we praise you that although we are so unworthy, as Romans 5 does say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ justifies the ungodly. We praise you for that, Lord. We have no hope without your grace. And so I ask today, Lord, that each one of your people would be encouraged and strengthened in their faith. I pray that they would be renewed in their desire to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit within them, to enjoy the love of God that is poured out in their hearts. And Lord, if there are any in here that don't know you or are far from you, I pray that you would draw them near with a glorious vision of the beauty and majesty and goodness and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, whose arms are wide open to receive everyone who comes to him. Lord, we give you praise and glory for all that you are and all that you're doing. And I ask for a special measure of grace on the body of Christ today. Amen and amen.